as we study the book of Proverbs and continue our way in, in serving the major themes of Proverbs, we come to the topic of building relationships. Building relationships often in our understanding or in our culture's understanding and portrayal of men. You know, the man is the independent one, the isolated one. He doesn't need anybody. That's often the picture of masculinity. He's an island unto himself. And yet we know that that caricature is far from the truth. We know that that isolation leads to all kinds of sin and emptiness. No, God has created us to be relational, to be in relationships. And that is certainly the case for men. And we're going to look at this tonight. We're going to look at principles from Proverbs as it pertains to this vital issue. But even before we go there, I want to emphasize that for God's people, community and fellowship has always been a top priority. And this is especially important in the days in which we live. It's important to emphasize this fact. We live in this pandemic era where the, the great virtue of our day is summarized by the term social distancing. Social distancing, to keep away from other people. And certainly, purely from a biological perspective, we can say that that can, that can help in stopping the spread of, uh, of communicable diseases. We know that. You, you stay six feet away, you stay ten feet away, you stay sixty feet away, it's the, 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 the chances are even greater that you'll avoid all these communicable diseases. But you can avoid these diseases and be virus-free, and that will not guarantee any true life. When we hear these, these commands to distance, we must always remember that that's focused purely on the biology of it. It does not take into consideration what God has created us to be in terms of social, relational beings. And so as you've probably seen in your own life, the last six months have been difficult. And certainly from a pastoral perspective, we see the the challenges that men especially face as they withdraw from community and accountability, the difficulties that arise in families, and certainly as we've heard from law enforcement, that that crime rises as people are kept away from each other. They're not healthy in the true sense. And so as we go through this strange time, it's important for us to remember that we are much more than biological beings. We are social beings. We were not created to distance ourselves. That may be a very temporary need, but it is not what we are called to do. We are called to be in community. We look at the early church, Acts chapter 2, verses 42. We see how Luke describes the foundational commitments of the early church. You could summarize it by these things. The early church devoted, the members of the early church devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching, to truth. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship to koinonia, to having things in common. 
We're not talking about the communist lifestyle here. We're talking about something that's much more spiritual in nature. Sharing life together. They were committed to sharing life together as well as to the breaking of bread. That's the commemoration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was essential. You could not have a true church without Jesus Christ and his redemption being central. And to prayer, to communion with God, as well as that fellowship with man. We see the same principle repeated in Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer speaks to these, these Jewish believers in Jesus, the Messiah, who are being pressured by their, their Jewish society, the society which did not accept Jesus as Messiah. They're being pressured to stay away from fellowship, stay away from those dangerous followers of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews specifically says to them, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There will always be pressures from society. There will always be pressures from the culture and even from the government to disrupt true fellowship, to disrupt true Christian community. We need to be aware of that. We can't expect the culture around us to sponsor and cultivate this. No, everything that we see in the culture around us, especially in these days, is diametrically opposed to what we do on our best days when we are together. So in light of that, let's consider this in, in, in terms of Solomon's wisdom. Friendships and right relations with neighbors have always been a consideration for God's people, a concern. And this is not just a New Testament reality, but an Old Testament one as well. It was important for Solomon. It was important for him to give those of the community of faith wisdom to know how to relate to one another. And so it's important to observe that Solomon devotes a great number of his Proverbs to imparting wisdom, skill, as it related to relationships. You see, Solomon recognized that the quest of every human being is to find the friend who loves at all times. Proverbs 17, verse 17. It's to find the friend who is trustworthy. That is the desire that we have on that horizontal level to be in the, the circle of those who love to be in the circle of those who are trustworthy. We were created for that. But this quest is not easy outside of the garden, outside of the Garden of Eden. It's not easy in the the context of sin in a treacherous world. It's not easy when we consider that from, from conception our hearts are bound up by folly. And so Solomon specifically instructs those who would follow the fear of the Lord in knowing how to develop skill in relationships. Wisdom in so many ways has to do with skill in relationships. In fact, I could say this, and if I asked for a show of hands, I'd imagine that most of the hands would go up. I'd say this, when you think of the most troubling experiences in life, 
the causes of the greatest pain, it probably would be relationships above all. But when I'd ask you to give me an indication of what causes great contentment and joy, it would also be relationships. Number one, and first and foremost, relationship with our Savior on that vertical level, but not just that, relationships with one another. So let's look to the book of Proverbs, and we are going to go through ten truths about relationships. Now, not all of these we'll spend a lot of time on. We're going to go through some of these rather quickly, depending on our time, but I want to identify them at least and spend time on the first, of, first several of these in particular. You have your hand out there. You can do some of your own study according to the Proverbs that I have listed under all of these different truths, but let's see what we can cover tonight. Let's begin with the first, and it's this. The first truth is foundational. If we listen to Solomon, we would see this. We must recognize our need for relationships. We must recognize our need for relationships. Man was not created for isolation or independence. Look at Proverbs 18 verse 1. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says this, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels. Literally, he bears his teeth against all sound wisdom. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He, who, he quarrels against all sound wisdom. Solomon is stating here very clearly that the one who practices social distancing because he thinks it makes him better, wiser, is the one who actually bears his teeth in the face of wisdom. Sound wisdom says the opposite. You cannot separate yourself. You need relationships. Now, this is certainly what we see reiterated or or emphasized even before the fall, even before sin entered the world. God gave Adam the task of naming the animals so that Adam would see that there is nothing in the animal kingdom that can enter into relationship with him. So Adam names all the animals but finds no friend. And that was intentional so that God would then create his helper, Eve. God himself stated, it is not good for the man to be alone. And we see then at that point, marriage is created as that ultimate relationship where man and woman become one flesh. But what we see there is that God has given man his image. And that means man resembles God in in certain ways. He reflects the glory of God in certain ways. And one of the aspects of that glory is relational. You see, in eternity past, God has never been bored. He has never been in need. He has instead enjoyed perfect community, perfect fellowship among the members of the triune Godhead. And so for us, being created in his image, we were created to have fellowship as well. We also see this challenged by the fall. We see the curse introduce strife 
into the relationship between the husband and the wife. But then we get into chapter 4 of Genesis and, and we see Cain separate himself. We see it in the words of Cain. After he has murdered his brother and the Lord comes to him and says, where is your brother? And Cain gives these words that are repeated at least metaphorically by men all the time. Cain says this, I do not know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? We see the impact already on the human race with those first descendants of Adam and Eve, the strife, the murder, and then the assertion that Cain was not his brother's keeper. And that same sin sweeps the human race, and we see it all the time today. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain says it as a rhetorical question. He believes he is not. Well, the wisdom of God counters those effects of sin. First and foremost, through regeneration, as the fear of the Lord makes us new creations. But then it gives us wisdom for the skill of living in relationship to others. You see, wisdom that is given through the fear of the Lord is not the wisdom that leads to a solitude life, the, the, the solitude reclusive life that often is the caricature of wisdom, these hermits that live out there somewhere on the top of a pole or in a cave that maybe once every five years sees a human being or actually says something. In the ages of human history, those are regarded sometimes as the wise men, but that's not how Solomon states it. Instead, when we read the book of Proverbs and all this, these relational Proverbs, we see that wisdom is the ability to navigate successfully the path of life as it relates to God, family, neighbor, and society. Wisdom is truly seen in relationships. And so you'll notice that in your own life. You cannot claim to be wise if you have no relationships. That's an easy claim to make. You isolate yourself, live in the desert, say you're wise. That's easy. But prove your wisdom in how you relate to others. That's the acid test. How do you relate to others? Wisdom is that skill in relating to others. In fact, it's interesting to note that not only does Solomon condemn isolation and independence, he also emphasizes that wisdom itself is gained in community. Wisdom is a community effort. Wisdom is a community effort. Look, for example, at Proverbs 15, verse 22. Without consultation, in isolation, in independence, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Wisdom is learned in community. And of course, we all know Proverbs 27, verse 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron. It's referring to that give and take relationship. You are sharpened as you sharpen others. Isolation instead leads only to weakness and to disaster. Again, often men think that needing relationships is actually a sign of weakness 
being independent and isolated is a sign of strength. That's not what Solomon says. In fact, look at Solomon's words in a different writing. In Ecclesiastes, he says this. In Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Man, we need community. We were created for relationships. And if you can't identify one good friend today, the call of wisdom is for you to say, you've got to change that. You've got to change that. You're not reflecting what you're supposed to reflect. You're not living according to how you have been designed. You need relationships. And I can say this too, if you are isolating yourself, withdrawing from community, you will find yourself weakened toward temptation. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has said in a fascinating book. We don't agree with everything that Bonhoeffer stated, that's for sure. But he had some important things to say about community, and he's got this little book. It's called Life Together. And he said this, Sin demands to have man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. End quote. You know how this works. Think of those times when you have been weak, caught in a pattern of sin. What's the tendency? Isolation. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to the Bible study. I just want to be by myself. And when you start to abide by that logic, you are going down the path of a fool. Instead, the response to these times when you're caught in these these moments of sin, these patterns of disobedience, you need to tell yourself, I need to get into the fellowship. I need to be with God's people. I need to be among the salt that are going to make me feel the pain of my wounds, that are going to admonish me, because it's only through that that the infection will be dealt with. We were created for relationship. Number two, Solomon teaches that though we are created for relationships, we must choose our friends carefully. Choose our friends carefully. First, wisdom teaches that for good or for bad, you become like those with whom you closely associate. We talked about this last week. It's one of the important laws that we find in divine wisdom, in the book of Proverbs. It's the law of assimilation. Remember that from last week. The law of assimilation says you absorb, you assimilate the attitudes and convictions and behaviors of those with whom you most closely associate, whether for good or for bad. So you must choose your friends carefully because if you choose poorly, you will assimilate foolish tendencies. 
Proverbs 3, verse 31, Solomon says this, Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. Solomon is specifically warning his son, Hey, do not associate with the violent. Do not associate with anything to do with that kind of lifestyle. You will assimilate what he lives. Proverbs 14, verse 7 Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern the words of knowledge. You hang out with fools enough, and you'll spout their ideologies, and you will no longer be able to recognize the truth. Proverbs 22, verses 24 to 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare. For yourself. You hang around the hothead, and eventually you'll be the brunt of his anger. Proverbs 11, verse 9 With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. Again, the law of associations you associate with the godless, and you'll be destroyed. You associate with the righteous, and you'll be delivered. Proverbs 12, verse 26, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 13, verse 20, we've heard this one many times. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 16, verse 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor. He entices those in his immediate circle and he leads him in a way that is not good. Or Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19. He who goes about as a slander reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with the gossip. Solomon is saying there essentially, if you're going to hang around with those who love to gossip, you can be assured the next thing they'll be doing is gossiping about you. So get away from them. Or you'll be their next target. There's an old saying that says this. It's another proverb in our day that expresses the same thing. The one who lies down with dogs will rise up with fleas, right? (laughs) The law of assimilation. In Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 gives another proverb. He says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Or as he states in Galatians 5 verse 7, a little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump of dough. Choose your friends wisely. Ask yourself right now, who are those in my circle of confidants? Those who endear my respect, those who influence me. Those from whom I assimilate convictions and attitudes, vocabulary, ideas. Who are they? Are they the leaven of the world? Are they the dogs of the world with fleas? Who are they? We must listen to the counsel of men like Thomas Watson, who said this, Be often among the godly. They are the salt of the earth, and they will season you. Or I like what... Abraham Kuyper said when he said this, He is your friend who pushes you nearer to God. Look at your life right now. Do an inventory. The friends that you have, are they pushing you towards the Lord? If they are, 
They're good friends. Hang around with them more. But if those men are pulling you away, you can be sure you're in a dangerous position. But not only does Solomon say we must choose our friends wisely with respect to good and bad, but Solomon also says under this heading that we must also recognize that balance is important in the choice of friends. Balance is important. As we choose friends, balance is essential. You see, being a social butterfly is no better than being a social hermit. There are dangers at both ends of the extreme. And that's why Solomon said in Proverbs 18, verse 24, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What Solomon is referring to here are those fair-weather friends, those that are just friends at that superficial level. And the reality of it is, is that when, when trials come, the storms happen, those fair-weather friends abandon you. You've made all this effort to win this great quantity of fair-weather friends, and in the end, they'll be of no value. So in the choice of friends, Solomon instructs us here to look for those few who will stick closer than a brother when the trials and storms of life come. You see, there's problems. There, there are those who are on the one extreme, those independent, isolated men, but then there are those other men who, are just, who just love popularity. They want to be in every circle. They're incessantly socializing. They're always trying to win new friends and get themselves into new circles. They prioritize the quantity of friends above the quality, and all of this leads them down the path of folly. No, a man of too many friends will come to ruin. But understand, there is a friend who can stick closer than a brother. You want those kinds of friends. Focus on quality, not quantity. Number three, pay attention to your words. Solomon emphasizes this repeatedly. If, you're, if you want to build relationships, you have to pay careful attention to your words. Words are either the building blocks for healthy relationships or they're the wrecking balls of existing relationships. With words, we either cultivate community or with words, we tear it all down. Proverbs 11 verse 9 says, With the mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 16 verses 23 to 24, The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. There Solomon is emphasizing that, that words add the sweetness needed in relationships. A relationship doesn't survive just on data, just on facts, just on the exchange of information. No, it's the sweetness of words that provides healing to the soul. Words can be those building blocks Proverbs 18, verse 21, 
death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life. Think about that. In the power of your mouth, in the power of your speech, you have, metaphorically speaking, the power to bring life or the power to bring death. And this proverb is so basic that all of us are sitting here going, that's absolutely true. We've all experienced both or either side of this equation. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So in light of that, Solomon goes on to give some special warnings as it relates to community. Special warnings as it relates to friendships, to relationships. Pay attention to these things in particular. He says, be careful, very careful of this wrecking ball use of speech called slander and gossip. Slander and gossip are devastating to any relationship and devastating to any larger community. Notice the, the strength of the language that Solomon uses here in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, as he explains the Lord's perspective on slander, on gossip. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Proverbs 16, verse 28. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 20, verse 19. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. You know, slander and, and especially gossip are those respectable sins that are really commonplace in many circles within the church. We know this to be true. We've engaged in it ourselves to our great shame. Gossip. Speaking others' secrets behind their backs. Revealing things to others that really were stated in confidence. Exaggerating truths and seeking to undermine the reputation of others. How often that happens and undoubtedly even on the patio of this church sometimes. Or slander, when we deliberately attempt to state false things about another so as to lower him in the eyes of the community. God hates these things, and they are detrimental to any community of faith. I like what Charles Swindoll said when he said this, the definition of a best friend is someone who knows enough to ruin you and doesn't. The definition of a best friend is someone who knows enough to ruin you and doesn't. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't slander. He knows your struggles. He knows your challenges. He knows your tears, your weaknesses, your, your trials. And he will not use that against you. He will not ruin you. That 
is a good friend. So be careful of gossip and slander, but also be careful of what we can call unfiltered candor. Unfiltered candor. While truthfulness is always required, it must always be seasoned with grace. And perhaps this is where we struggle more. Sometimes we like to pride ourselves in the ability to say things the way they really are. I don't beat around the bush. I'm going to say it straight, direct to you. I'm going to state it as I see it. And we take pride in that courage. But that's not wisdom necessarily. Yes, we need courage to speak the truth, but that's half of the equation. Solomon over and over again says that if relationships are to be built, if there's to be a healthy community, it must be seasoned with grace. Proverbs 12 verse 18, there's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Think of the man who is sick, And there's one kind of friend who comes with the sword drawn and just starts stabbing. I will get this infection out of you some way. And then there's the other kind of friend, the true friend, who comes with the tongue of healing. Not this unfiltered candor, but words seasoned with grace. Proverbs 12, verse 25 Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. The good friend is the one who recognizes when, man is, when his friend is, is weighed down, when his heart is hurting. And he doesn't just come up with facts. He sees himself as a tool, an instrument to bring life. And so he knows the words he speaks the words that will make that, that discouraged heart glad. That is what marks a relationship. Proverbs 20, verse 15, There is gold and abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious things. Lips of knowledge. Knowing what to speak, when to speak it, and how to speak it. 27, verse 9, Oil and perfume make the heart glad. So a man's counsel is sweet. This is true kind of counsel. This man's counsel is sweet to his friend. It is the word fitly spoken. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, it must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. Think of that. Some of us speak first and think later. Or some of us just speak whatever we think. That doesn't build relationships. As Bonhoeffer is saying here, you know, we're going to think a lot of things and a lot of those thoughts are going to be ill-founded. And there is a distinct skill in building relationships that we won't speak whatever comes to mind. We'll take the time to think. We'll consider what is the best response Maybe I don't need to confront him at this moment in a crowd of people. Maybe I need to listen and ask questions first. Maybe I need to choose those words that express my, my, my compassion as I confront this brother on his sin. 
Number four, another truth that we find is that we are to practice a give-and-take approach to counsel. We indeed are to speak truth, but we are to do this in a give-and-take approach, and this is so important. And Dan Phillips has a helpful explanation of how relationships work. He, he takes this give-and-take idea and says that there are ways that you, or there are times when you have just give relationships, times that you have just take relationships. Ideally, you want give and take relationships. But more than that, in the giving and the taking, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. So there's a, a right kind of give relationship that simply is always providing encouragement, always giving benefit. But the give relationship that is wrong is the constant giving of criticism and grief. The constant giving of problems to others. That's a give relationship that has turned wrong. In take relationships, you have a a good sense of that. That's taking counsel. That's always taking correction. Always receiving necessary help from others. But then you have a wrong side to the take relationships when it's always just consuming their strength, always consuming their attention, always focusing on what they need to give to me. But then there's the good things of both giving and taking combined into one kind of relationship. It's the give and take relationship in the best sense. And this is what we ought to aim for. In a give and take relationship, Philip states, We are peers, sharing back and forth, now giving, now receiving, now teaching, now learning. You might say, I'm a a giver, I just give counsel, or you might say, I'm a taker, I just receive counsel. You need to aim in your relationships to being both. Now, maybe you're weak right now and you need to receive, and certainly maybe you're You're elderly, you're wise, you've got all this experience, and you need to be given more than what you are. But ideally, within the community of God's people, among us men, we need to all be working on give and take. We need to be working on the the giving, the giving of counsel, of encouragement, of admonition, and the receiving of counsel and encouragement and admonition. We need to let our defenses down and receive those things thankfully. And we need to take up the courage and give those things boldly. And when, those, when, when that kind of life happens among a brotherhood, you have a healthy brotherhood. Again, Proverbs 27, verse 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's that back and forth that we all need. You are needed to sharpen me. I'm needed to sharpen you. That's the way God has planned it. And it's beautiful in His sight when it happens. Let's move on to the next one. Number five, be quick to forgive and to confess. Be quick to forgive and to confess. Essential to healthy relationships is a readiness to forgive. Listen, if you are not one who finds it easy to forgive, you will constantly struggle in relationships. 
And maybe that explains a lot. Maybe as you do inventory of your life today, you're going, I don't have any good friends. It's all their fault. Well, stop for just a minute. Think of it. Ask yourself the question. Maybe it's not their fault. How quickly do you forgive? How many grievances are you carrying on your shoulders day after day against what others have done for you or to you? And if you're carrying this burden of grievances and offendedness, understand that you will not have friends. You will not build relationships. Relationships are built on a quickness to forgive. Proverbs 10 verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 17 verse 9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Proverbs 19 verse 11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Let that sink in. It is your glory to overlook a transgression. Now, what does it mean to forgive? It, it means this. It means, as, as Jay Adams says, when we truly forgive, it means this. I will not bring up the matter to you again. If you've sinned against me and I forgive you, it means if I've truly forgiven, I'm not going to keep bringing it up. You've confessed it to me. I've forgiven you. I'm not going to keep bringing it up. I've forgiven you. It's over. It also means that I will not bring up the matter to another. So you've confessed your sin and I've forgiven you, and it means I will not speak of this to anyone else. I've forgiven you. You've confessed. So I will not go and tell others of your transgression. That's what it means to forgive. And then number three, and this is the hardest, if we've truly forgiven someone, it means I will not bring up the matter to myself. That's the hardest one, but it means that if, if we have truly forgiven our brother, it means I don't keep hitting the rewind button over and over again of that sin. I may never speak to anyone else about it. I may never speak to that individual about it, but I'll keep replaying it over and over. But true forgiveness says that stops. And when it does, it creates the opportunity for further fellowship. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we condone wrong. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye towards sin. We could look elsewhere and, and, and over and over again, Solomon calls upon us to admonish the fool. That's not what Solomon is, is getting at here when he call, talks about covering a transgression. What he's referring to is that this covering of a transgression is not the covering of our own transgression, but it's the extending of forgiveness to one who recognizes the folly of his ways. And in response to that recognition of the folly of his ways, we say, you know what? You're forgiven. My love covers this. But it also, it means this. Central to healthy relationships is also the readiness to confess. If we're going to have healthy relationships, if we're going to build a strong community in our families, with friends, in this church, we have to have a readiness to confess Proverbs 28 verse 13 says this, He who conceals his own transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. 
Here's the other side of the coin. Not only must we let love cover the the sins of others, but in response to our own transgressions, we must not conceal our transgressions, and instead we must openly confess them. When we have sinned against others, we must go to them and say, brother, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against you. And in a in a healthy community, that confession will not be met with greater consternation, but instead will be met by compassion. You find this in James verse, chapter 5, 16 as well, where James calls upon us to confess our sins to one another. Those that we've committed against each other, we are to confess. And men, let me ask you this. As you look upon all your relationships right now, the ones that come to mind... Have you either failed to confess or have you failed to forgive? And I want you to go home tonight, think through this carefully. Could it be that the challenges and pain you feel in relationships comes down to this fact that you have failed to confess your sins? You've tried to cover your own transgressions. And when you do that, you can be guaranteed of a life of strife. Or others have sinned against you and they have tried to reconcile. You just didn't like the imperfections of their confession. And so you hold it against them. Is that what has marked your life? If that is the case, repent. And when you do, you will find both compassion and community. Well, there's several others that we could look at. I will not cover these tonight. Our time is up. But let me just mention these briefly. Number six, we must prioritize listening over speaking. Number seven, we cannot be overbearing. We must not be overbearing in our relationships. There's some important things to consider there. These will be in the handout. This will also be in the PowerPoint that will be posted on the website. Number eight, we must show loyal love. Look through the Proverbs that emphasize chesed, this Hebrew idea of loyal love. Number nine, we must protect what is revealed in confidence. And number ten, as we round it out, We must share God's hatred for strife. These are important truths from the book of Proverbs. I encourage you in the days ahead to get down into these Proverbs, to read them, meditate upon them prayerfully. And this will help you in your desire to find a friend who sticks closer than a brother, a faithful friend, a loyal friend, and it will help you to be that very loyal friend. But as we close, I want to return to the hymn that we sang at the beginning. We're not going to sing it now, but I want to focus on one of the stands. We could look at all of them. What a friend we have in Jesus. You see, ultimately, unless we have him as our friend, there is no hope for true community. There's no hope for healthy relationships in us. Unless we have him as our redeemer, the one who bears our sorrows, our griefs. There's no hope 
So at the end, we must turn to this this reality. Do we have Jesus as our friend? And as one of the stanzas of that hymn reads, Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? And even if we apply all the wisdom of Proverbs and, and, and seek all these reforms in our lives, we were not meant to find ultimate friendship in other human beings. We were not meant to deify other human beings. We were not meant to raise horizontal relationships to the ultimate relationship. So in human friends, when we look to them for more than what they can provide, we will only find vanity. But there is a friend who truly does stick closer than a brother. And that is Jesus Christ. As the hymn writer states, Jesus knows our every weakness. Our sin, our blackness, the depravity of our soul, if we look to Him and cry out and say, Jesus, I need what You and only You can provide, the peace, the forgiveness, the satisfaction, the contentment, the joy, it's not in me. It's nowhere else on this earth. Only You can provide this to me. Jesus, I need You. And you come to Him in faith You come to Him in abandonment of every other human relationship. You come to Him abandoning all your efforts at self-improvement. And He will become your friend. The one who will never abandon you. Through thick and thin, He will walk with you. And He will be your guide. And He will carry you on to life eternal. Turn to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our time, we are reminded at the difficulty of this whole topic. I'm confident that each one of us in this room, Heavenly Father, could tell stories of brokenness, tell stories of relationships that today are only sources of pain and sorrow and even illness. Indeed, we we look back on those relationships and we see there's folly that is wrapped up in all of that. Folly of our own hearts. The folly of others' hearts. But we're thankful that your word provides us with solutions. First and foremost, it gives us the fear of the Lord, the revelation of truth, the fear that regenerates us, makes us new. Then it gives us the wisdom to begin to live accordingly, to begin to live in wisdom, in skill, in relation to others. I pray that you would press these truths deep within our hearts so that as others observe our lives and how we interact with one another, there would be this common refrain, these are a special group of men. They're different. The world would see by our love for one another that we have Jesus as our ultimate friend. Make this true of us, not only in word, but in the most practical of deeds. 
We ask this so that Jesus' name would be held high. Amen.